Okay, I've hit record and we're just going to, to jump in. Andy, thank you so much for being here today. I am very happy to be here. It feels like we usually go years between serious <laughs> conversations, so it's glad, I'm glad we get to follow up so quickly on this. I'm, I'm going to jump right in, all right? And I'm going to catch you off guard with, I mean, not off guard, but I didn't give you a chance to think about this beforehand because I wanted to see what would spark up for you. I'm going to start by talking about you as a writer and it can go where you want it to go. But what is the first thing you remember writing? And what's the most poignant part of that memory for you? So can you remember what you first wrote or what's at least the first piece of writing that comes up in your memory? And what do you remember about that experience? Yeah, uh, I actually know exactly where that is. And uh, I, I probably have other memories of uh, writing in maybe elementary school, but I, I have a, like a, a lightning bolt moment. I, I was a terrible student in high school, but um, I, I, I wrote well enough through high school to be able to get into the advanced placement honors English class my senior year and right out the gate our teacher assigned us uh, just a simple to the assignment was to write a simple poem and I, I wrote a poem and um, I, I remember I remember the poem because I incorrectly used the word I think I should have used the word abysmal, but I used a word abyssal. Mm. And and the the teacher came back with that correction, but I I kind of fought her because I knew the definition of abysmal and it wasn't what I was trying to say. Yeah. Um but the first line of the poem was deep waters, cold night, afraid of you. No, I'm not. I stand strong in spite of thunder, always staying undercover. Oh, man. I, I can't re recollect the rest, but, it, but, it, but it's quite long. And as you can tell, very um, primitive. And, but, but what I can tell looking back on that is that I was reading the Psalms a lot because mm -hmm. You know, anthropomorphizing storms and things like yeah. that. I mean, I didn't know that's what I was doing when I was writing that, but uh, but but to the teacher, it stood out, and she actually read it in front of the class. And I remember feeling a, a not a sense of pride, but a sense of satisfaction. Like, mm. um, well, I've heard Christian Wyman talk about this thing where he. He he has such an anticipation when he heads to his writing desk because of the things that he's going to find out when he puts words together. Yeah. And I remember having that sense of gratification in the writing of it and then having somebody else recognize that I was maybe on my way to, you know, it's it's what writers or poets do. It's it's kind of like they're they're stumbling across mysteries and then they're revealing those things. Mm -hmm. So obviously that's a spectrum. We don't always do it well, but occasionally we do. And man, when you do, it's 
kind of fantastic. So that that is, I still have the hard copy of that poem somewhere in my collection of papers. So I, I occasionally look at it as a reminder. Yeah, I love the way you've told us that story because it it kind of works in your experience of writing it, but also the reception of it. Yes, and that, that public performance of it. I'll, I'll get to this later in our conversation, but I, I do think, for you at least, the art isn't simply in the creation, the writing of the lyrics or the writing of the lines, but also in in the way that they're shared and then mm-hmm. responded to, right? Reacted to. Does that seem right? Yeah, I mean, I, I've had a lot of conversations with younger writers over the last few years, and and. And there does seem to be maybe this is unique or to to folks in the church, or maybe it's not. I don't know. But sometimes, sometimes um, there there's a false humility sometimes associated with uh, the performative aspects of art, and uh, you know, you know, maybe it could just be insecurity or a lack of confidence. And and you know, sometimes you do write things that just shouldn't be shared because they're they're just not that good. Yeah. Uh, but I don't think that uh, and, and unless you're writing for the sake of of therapy, which I think is a really valid reason for writing, like working stuff out of your own body and mind, um, just so that you can read back to yourself what you might think. I think that's a legitimate form of expression. But I also think that there's a glory in writing something and then performing it out loud somewhere and then you know, uh, just kind of dealing with the reception of what you've just given. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's not always necessarily, uh, you know, people aren't always applauding you. I mean, they may be applauding you politely, but it's not (laughs) necessarily always like, oh my gosh, that's the greatest thing I've ever heard. I mean, at, at least in the, in the tradition that I'm working in, a lot of times uh, folks are just shaking their heads at me like they have no idea what I just said, mm-hmm. which is it can seem a little self-sabotaging, but I understand that that's what I'm trying to do a lot of the times. And so I'm kind of up for anything. So but I but I really do enjoy that piece of it. And I don't shy away from the performative mm-hmm. side of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you and I both. and. Maybe this is a, a good time to bring this out into the conversation. I think we'll probably return to it a few times, but you and I both come from similar back, I mean, different parts of the country, but I think generally speaking, similar tradition spiritually. So I, I would describe it as this kind of sweaty Pentecostal, you know, brush arbor spirituality, working yes. class spirituality. You know, where where people are gathering at the church at the end of a long work week. Mm-hmm. And there is an artfulness there, although, of course, they would never have talked about it as art. I mean, all of that would have been pretentious, but they, they are being artful. And yeah. so much of the art is in that sharing. The the given, I mean, think about the ways in which preaching works in our tradition. They're, the audience mm-hmm. talks back in the moment. That's right. That's so right. I, I think there's a way in which what you do embodies that all the way through the process you don't simply write about that mm-hmm. because you also perform what you write or much of what you write mm-hmm. you're allowing for that feedback that call and response reality and i think that's some of what 
I regard as your art. You're not simply an artist who does art and then people in, in observe it. Some of what you're doing artfully is involving people in the sharing, the giving and sharing of what you've made. Mm-hmm. They're, yeah, they're getting to make too in some way. Yeah. And I, I relish that, that back and forth. Uh, this is, this is really interesting. I, I did a show not too long ago in Nashville. Um, I, I I'll say this as a setup to the story, uh, playing shows in Nashville is not easy to do because that that's a city filled with the world's greatest talent. Right. Um, So it's slightly audacious to say, Hey, I'm going to go play a show in Nashville. Well, I did it. I sold some tickets. It was great. Had a great crowd. There was a person in that show who I would say um, was (laughs) of the Pentecostal persuasion (laughs) because the whole time I'm playing, I, I, it, it didn't matter if I was singing, you know, sad song or or middle of the road song or happy song this person was having a bodily experience throughout the whole show mm. and 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 for me it was giving me life but i had a conversation with a few people after the show who 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 made mention of it and because they they had no context for this person's uh, <laughs> reaction to what I was doing, they were a little bit put off. And but but I said to them, I was I happened to be talking to another artist. I said, I said, yeah, but wouldn't you want 150 people at your show that were acting like that person all together in this kind of like group performance where you're mm-hmm. you're 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 not ashamed to hear something profound and to let your body react to it. I I think that we Westerners coming from our more stoic Western European sides of things, Mm -hmm. we've, we've kind of like pushed that side down, that tribal side down. And I, I, I mean, I mean, we, we, you and I, between the two of us, we could critique our tribe all day long. But one of the things that I think we get right is that we, we are not afraid of, of, um, well, we're just not afraid to be demonstrative, whether it's in grief or whether it's in joy. Um, and, and we, I, I know all of the tired motifs and tropes that have arisen from that initial discovery. But I, for one, I cannot endure the alternatives where everybody's just being polite all the time. Yeah. And so, and, and I, and I feel that in my art as well. I feel like my, my art is, is charismatic slash Pentecostal intrinsically because it's not afraid to, to be shocking, not for the sake of like being shocking, but, just for the sake of like revealing the inside of my chest a little bit yes, and then just trusting God for the outcome. I, I think that's a very Pentecostal flex. Yeah. At, at least. Yes. I think that's right. And it, it was, I planned to get to this later in the conversation, but this is a good place. I think to touch, to touch on it because you've, you've identified what to me is a, a fine distinction, but, but an absolutely crucial one. And that is, being expressive, being emotional, being demonstrative, 
like everything depends on the depth of the feeling that is being demonstrated, right? So there's a kind of superficial, um, what we might call emotionalism, so that what you're express, expressing is just merely affected. Yeah. But there's another way in which if it's coming from your guts, it's if it's coming from your deep heart, if it's welling up, springing up, exploding, rupturing, then there's a way in which that that's an entirely different energy, right? It's an entirely different energy. I remember a few years ago, my wife and I, my, not my wife and I, my daughter and I went to a, a protest and they were singing praise songs that I've heard, you know, the churches that we've attended, but they were singing them in the context of protest. And it was, there were different bodies singing them. Yes. From a different place in different hearts. Yes. And those songs were something else, Mm. right? They were something else. And that something else to me is the difference between heart and the heartlessness that comes with sentimentality that comes with affected displays of spirituality. Right. So what, where our tribe is, is most diseased is when we're trying to be expressive or trying to be demonstrative rather than kind of letting the heart show itself, right. Letting the heart appear in the way that it needs to appear. So I I think that you're singing about that and, and, and not just singing about it. I think you're, you're striving to let it happen to you in front of people. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's very interesting what, what we've witnessed kind of coalesced in the greater Pentecostal stream where it's funny. I was, I was actually just talking about this with a friend yesterday, but um, you know, it's, I mean, I, I don't know if, if where you're going to go with this conversation, and maybe we do jump into the theological side of of the art making. But um, what's been so interesting to me in in my own journey as a music maker, songwriter, and you know, now lately, just prose poetry writer. Um. What I'd really like to do for the sake of having a larger audience is I would like to disconnect myself from my story and my roots of Pentecostalism, because there's just a lot more money to be had if you're if you're just going to, you know, I don't want to pick on the worship music industry. That's just that's like that's also a tired critique at this point. But but like we know what we know what it exists we it, it, it's it is what it is it's filled with really good people doing really great things um but i've i've always felt like a bit of a misfit whether it was in my church growing up or or just kind of in the like i don't know if if it's just this slick evangelicalism that is has been kind of not just the tip of the spear but the whole dang spearhead and shaft for for so long now yeah yeah that that when we kind of like get into those corporate singing spaces and we're we're just we're confronted by money and power 
and and then and then but what's worse than the money and the power is the belief systems that are undergirding those proclaimed theologies and um i i i this is to go backwards a little bit my history as a songwriter goes roughly like this i was a kid grew up in the church um wanted to serve god uh picked up a guitar learned to sing all of that kind of stuff and i eventually started writing worship tunes and i I got fairly good at it and you know, and then somewhere along the line in the late mid mid nineties, late nineties, early two thousands, like worship leading started becoming like a career option. And then all of a sudden people started making enormous amounts of money. And I mean, I'm not trying to be poor. I, I, you know, like make a living, you know, more power to you. So, but I, but, but what happened was this as, as all things, as they're monetized there, these formulas develop. And and so instantly I figured that formula out and I started writing towards that formula and it was great, except that I was dying inside. And, and I, I hear this from worship leaders all over, like we have to do these songs every Sunday, but we're dying inside. And um, the the thing that happened to me that really set me free from that is that tragedy struck in my life? I, I I had an I had an actual heartbreak that was so bad it took me years to recover. But 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 the gift that that was to me is that it it made me not care anymore what the powers that were the the powers in charge of the church no longer had access to my mind. It, it was like, it was like, I just, something happened to me. It was like God put a hedge of protection around me all of a sudden. And I, and I just didn't care anymore what anybody said. And, and this, this, this could potentially sound offensive to people. So please forgive me in advance. If this, if this offends any of your listeners, but I was driving down the road one day and it was, it was uh, fall of 2009. And I felt like the spirit of the Lord gave me an invitation. And, and the words that I heard were this, you can go ahead, Andy, and write your slave music. Mm. You can write slave music. And it crushed me. It crushed me so bad because I didn't even know what that meant. First of all, um, I, I kind of knew what it meant, but I didn't really know what it meant. Yeah. But but what I really eventually understood the spirit to have been saying to me was that I had an invitation to join my like to become a link in the long, long chain of songwriters of people that have had to endure impossible lives. Mm -hmm. And yet in the midst of those impossible lives made art and sang and wrote and, and, and like went mining for the gold in the midst of their worst tragedies. I mean, like, 
I understand the context of my life in the 21st century white male. And, and so I, I say all of that with like, a, like a, just a great trembling. Um, but I nevertheless have had moments of abject heartbreak and, 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 you know, dire poverty of, of different sorts. And so my tradition had at some point just decided to sing about faithfulness and faithfulness was always defined by calling God good by, by decreeing and declaring victory in every situation and, and, and holding any type of description of the way life actually is at arm's length. So that really was the thing that opened up the spigot for me emotionally and spiritually. And, and it, and it made my writing a whole lot better. Yeah. Well, I, th- I think the, just a couple of comments, then I'll ask a question. I mean, I think what you're describing points to the irreality, the, the fabrication in which most of us live most of the time. Like you, you made the statement a moment ago that th- that people in this long chain have made art in spite of how hard their lives were. But I think it's closer to the truth to say because their lives were hard, they never lost touch with their deep heart. Yes. We have a kind of, and I think life is hard no matter who you are, no matter where you're living, right? Life is hard for us now, but there are ways in which we've learned to buffer ourselves from that difficulty and one of the things that we lose when we buffer ourselves from reality, from how hard life actually is, is we lose our artfulness. We lose heart and we lose our artfulness. And I think heartbreak under our conditions, how else do you get in touch with the truth if it's not your world being shattered or being somehow enraptured out of it? You know, some experience of great wonder or some experience of deep grief. I mean, there's a, I'm going to come to Nick Cave again a couple times in this conversation, but he has a section in this new book where he talks about how grief has made him a person, right? And I think what he's describing is exactly what you're describing. You had the kind of grief that brought you to yourself and put you in touch with the world as it actually is. Mm -hmm. And then you could sing. That's right. Then you could sing. Otherwise, all you could do was fabricate songs. Like you could, you could recognize a formula and produce it. That's right. But you could, you couldn't sing, right? And you, you're because your heart was veneered with with the superficialities of life as we were trying to make it for ourselves. You know, in twentieth and twenty first century America. So my, I, I mentioned this to you before we started recording. My mother. She played piano, sang in church growing up, a gifted singer, and especially for our circles, right? And one of the things that happened to her over the course of her life that I've only recently come to really understand with any kind of appreciation at all is that she became a kind of midwife for the dying. Like She was asked again and again and again to come to the bedside, and I think it's because she was a singer. Yeah. And I think it's because she's saying from that place in her heart that made it so she could be present to the dying. Yes. And she told me the other day when this all hit me just recently, she, she told me out of something I had shared with her that 
someone in our family was dying and asked to have I'll Fly Away sung as they were dying. And that she had sung Oh Come Angel Band, both when my grandmother was dying, her mother, and when my grandfather, her father, was dying. And it hit me right away. I mean, first of all, I think it's interesting that when she told me that, I thought, I want to hear Andy sing Oh Come Angel Band. That I, uh, in you have that place in my heart as someone who, whose voice resonates in that place. Yes. Which I hope you hear as, as a compliment. I mean it. That I way. do. Yeah. But it also struck me that I'll fly away. I mean, it's about as bad right, as a song could be in some ways, right? I mean, N.T. Wright, you know, everybody who's been influenced by him, you know, would think of that song as kind of exactly what's wrong with our spirituality. It's escapist. It's concerned about going to heaven rather than heaven coming here, blah, blah, blah. But there are yeah. two things about it that strike me. One is there's that line in the song, just a few more weary days and then. Right. And there's a way in which that song is arising out of an experience of weariness that most of us, we're not in touch with. We are weary. We just don't know that we are. Yeah. And we can't admit it. So the churches I grew up in, they changed that lyric. So we sang not a few more weary days and then we sang a few more cheery days and then. (laughs) I'm not kidding. I wish I were kidding. This is how this is how you deform the imagination of a generation of young people right but notice what's happening there right like we can admit to ourselves life is hard yeah so we've got to we've got to gauze it right we've, we've got to give a kind of veneer to it a few more cheery days and then so I, i'd love to hear you talk just a little bit about that what you hear in that that my that song sung at the bedside of the dying is not escapist it, it's grounded in life as it actually is it seems to me and maybe maybe it's as simple as we we don't have enough of we don't experience enough the passing we don't see the dying and so we don't write from that place or sing from that place talk talk a little bit about about that yeah i i think so much of the issues that we we, we face as as a church or as um as followers of jesus but then but then this seems to obviously affect our poets and our writers is that i don't i mean i don't know where this happened i'm not a church historian but i i'm not sure it it, it seems to me if, if if I if I didn't know anything about Christians or the church and I showed up at your average church on a Sunday morning and I heard the language that they were using, what I think that my takeaway would be was that the project that they were working on was that there was um, there was some type of confession that needed to be made uh like 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 positivity or optimism is the highest value yeah there's they're they're defending uh they, i i don't i'm i'm not quite sure how to put it but but what my experience has been 
is that the theology that I had when I was younger was mostly thwarted by the reality that I ended up living. Yes, yes. And I think that that's that's a common experience for many Christians, but they're told uh, that faithfulness means that even when your life doesn't make sense, you must say that it does. Mm -hmm. Because if you, if you do, then God's going to respond to you positively. Yeah. You get rewarded for that kind of deceitfulness of that, you know, positive confession. Yes. This, this makes me think of one of your songs. You have your guitar there. I do. Yeah. Maybe, maybe you could sing a line or two of this, but I'm, I'm thinking of what nobody should know. Yes. So maybe just sing a line or two of that. And then I want to talk a little bit about how I hear that song and how I think it relates to this moment. Sorry to throw you on the spot like that, but you're uh, That's great. you're a professional. Yeah. <laughs> Bury my heart in a blanket of evening snow. Raise a glass for me when the blackberries grow. You of us are wishing for what is not so. Because we found out what nobody should know. Making love with my true companion. Hope is the thing that we abandon. Driving across a desert canyon Trying to get back home I went to the Lord with a bow and arrow Tried to shoot him down with a song of sorrow But love is not a thing that we can borrow It costs you blood and bone Yeah. So, gosh, man. Yeah, I've heard that song so many. I mean, not as many times as you've heard it, but I've heard it a lot of times, and it still gets me. And it gets a couple things about it, right? That seem especially relevant to what we've just been discussing. One is that love is not a thing you can borrow, and I think somehow, I don't mean this in a cheap sense. I mean that would be ironic if I did, but in a way, for many of us, the American dream led to us being able to buffer ourselves, protect ourselves from certain kinds of suffering. And we ended up kind of narcotizing our lives, like deadening ourselves to reality in ways we didn't intend. Nobody intended, but it happened. And then our churches reflected that, right? And our churches, instead of, some of them, of course, did, but instead of resisting it, they were so concerned with getting larger and staying open that they were willing to give us what we said we wanted instead of what we actually needed so i think this song points to you can't borrow these things right but i i'm 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 stunned still every time i hear the line about we found out what nobody should know but the truth is andy and this is what i want you to comment on because i don't know the background for that lyric but the way i've always heard it is you shouldn't know it 
But until you know it, that's you're right. not going to know anything you should know. That's that's exactly right. Yes. Yes. Nobody should know this. Nobody should have to know it. The world is not what it should be. But until you know that, yeah, nothing else is going to come to you. So just just give us either the story of the lyric or, yes. or where where it takes you now. Yeah, I'm I'm actually proud to tell this story on this particular podcast. I I don't tell it often, Chris, because because you know the whole pearls before swine thing, and it's 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 one of these. It's a tender story, so I I, I generally play the song and just let people have have at it what they will. But it's actually the um it's actually the prequel to cherry blossoms, or it, it's it's the it's the crucifixion before the resurrection of, of the song Cherry Blossoms. But the details of the story, and I and I and I'm 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 sure I've we've talked about this before, but just for the sake of your audience, is that uh in 2009, I my my wife Amy and I and our kids, we were out in California visiting our family. Uh we live in North Carolina, we've lived here for 25 years. Um uh, a dear friend of ours was sleeping in his house one night and he was murdered in his bed. He was sleeping in a bed with his wife and they had their little baby boy sleeping between them. Somebody breaks into their house, goes up into the master suite and, and shoots five bullets into this man's chest. He manages to get out of the bedroom or out of the bed and, and get this guy wrestles him into the master bathroom his wife and kids they they get out of the house he dies there that night and and the person who did this was never caught it it, it remains a cold case um but the the context of that story where that happened was in a a wonderful church. It's st- it's still my church home. This is I, I still take my family to this church. But what what we were uh, we were not a word of faith church, but word of faith theology yeah. was part of our greater vernacular. Yeah. And 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 so I mean we were quoting Psalm ninety one and Psalm one hundred and three and praying the prayers of protection around our families and loved ones. And we shall be the head and not the tail. And if, you know, take the law into your mouth and then regurgitate it and no bad things were happening. I mean, I mean, this is a non-affiliated, non-denominational church. So it wasn't like we were handed this by some superpower mothership somewhere else. We were just gleaning from, everything that was coming down the pipe and and i just i mean i just remember it it was fascinating it when bad things happen to people it's like everything is revealed all of your theology is is what you actually believe about the world suddenly comes into play it's People start articulating what they think about things. And so for Amy and I, it was, I would say, six months of six months of atheism to start out with. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And then I was really considering all my options uh, after after that experiment, because I I could see where I I was going to be forced to go with that and. And so I, I just kind of dove straight back into Jesus pretty hard. 
Um, but but like I said earlier, it was it was the tragic experience that that made me go, oh, to hell with all these people who are who are are lying to me and facilitating liars. And and so what we're going to do here is I mean, I had a position in the church. I was I was the worship pastor at the church. I said, what we're going to do is we're going to tell the truth. Yeah. And, and, I, and I'll never forget my pastor at the time. He gets up into the pulpit and he says this. He looks everybody in the eye and he says, you want answers from me? You want answers from me? He's like, I don't have any answers. You want answers from God? You go ask him because I don't have any answers for him. And I'm telling you, Chris, a grace bomb went off in that room. Because he was articulating what we were all feeling. And rather than do damage control and rather than like try to hire a publicist for God in that moment. Right, right. He just let the pieces fly. Mm -hmm. And and honestly, it was such an act of faith because he was trusting his church and his people and his pastoral ministry uh, to the spirit of the the Lord in a way that I had just never witnessed before. And and I just felt this huge door open to me as a poet. I just, I felt this, I'm like, Oh, okay. So I would say that that was really my, my, my gateway into an actual orthodoxy of knowing Jesus, following Jesus, finding out what that really means. And man, you know, Reading the scripture again after you go through some some something like that is it's a different experience because you're because you're no longer trying to protect you're not trying to toe the party line anymore you're you're being read by the text all of a sudden yeah and that's what we need isn't it it is yeah I think the just to demystify it for those who are kind of trying to track I think. One way of getting to this, Father John Bear, who's, I think, really helpful on this point, has written a lot about death and the death of Jesus and how it reveals God to us. Bear will talk about the ways in which it's at, it's how Jesus dies that reveals to us what it means to be God. Jesus, in the way that he dies, shows us what it is. You know, it's as Jesus is dying that that the confession is made. Truly, this is the Son of God. And and I remember. John saying in, in multiple contexts, I've heard him say this, that everything turned for us culturally when we were no longer present to the dying, in which we we outsource that to an industry. You, you mentioned the the worship music industry, but there, of course, one of the most fundamental realities of our lives is the healthcare industry. Yes. Yes. And and I think it was our our parents' generation, Andy, that where that shifted. My grandparents grew up in a world where they were with the dying when they died, they washed the bodies. Yes. They prepared the body for burial. And, and then with a certain kind of affluency, a certain kind of class readjustment, you know, new, uh, new work schedules. I mean, dynamic processes and complicated processes, but, but fundamentally many of the people that raised us, right. That attended our churches that showed up in our schools that lived in the houses in our neighborhoods in our parents' generation, they no longer had to do that work of being present to the dying or the very, very sick or the very, very old. And 
in that way without realizing it without some you know conspiratorial mastermind we just lost touch with what it means to be human yeah and that i think is what is is being named when you talk about slave music right nobody should know about slavery no but here's here's the the good news the slave doesn't lose touch with reality in slavery the master does that's right. It's the master who's deceived, not the slave. The slave is oppressed. The slave is abused. The slave is wronged, but the slave is not lying. Mm. The master has to lie to make his life make sense, to make the world make sense. And Willie Jennings, I, mean, I think he's exactly right about this. Like many of us, our theology became a master theology. It's rooted not in the slavery of Jesus, but in the mastery of the plantation owner. And if you tie that, that long history to the rise of the medical industry and pharmaceutical industry and the ways in which we could like literally and metaphorically deaden our pain. Yeah. I think we, we lost touch with something that not only cheapened our art, but altered our lives for the worse, right? Made it so that we're less humane people. And that's what I think you're describing. Listen to this. This is Nick, Nick Cave, not Nick Cage, for those who are, who are wondering. Uh, Nick Cave, in, in this new book, Faith, Hope, and Carnage, he's talking specifically about the death of his son. So he had twin boys. One of them died in a climbing accident. And Arthur was his name. So I'm just going to pick up right in the middle of it, read this to you, and then get your response. Grief can be seen as a kind of exalted state where the person who is grieving is the closest they will ever be to the fundamental essence of things. You either go under or it changes you, or worse, you become a small, hard thing that has contracted around an absence. Sometimes you find a grieving person constricted around the thing they lost. They become ossified and impossible to penetrate, and other people go the other way, grow open expansive. Arthur's death literally changed everything for me, absolutely everything. It made me a religious person. I'm not talking about being a traditional Christian. I'm not even talking about belief in God necessarily. It made me a religious person in the sense that I felt on a profound level, a deep inclusion in the human predicament and an understanding of our vulnerability and the sense that as individuals, we are each of us imperiled. Each life is precarious, and some of us understand it, and some don't. I became a person after my son died. That's absolutely incredible. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Well, it is what you just sang to us, though. Nobody should know that. No father should know what it means for his son to die. Yes. But until you know that, and it doesn't have to be, the death of someone you love, a friend or a son. But you've got to be up against those realities of the world and its gone wrongness. This is not this is not right. This is not what it should be. And yet, at that point, what can be known and should be known becomes possible. Yeah. Uh, I, I say this often to folks. Um, you know, if if I have any audience at all, Chris, is it's it's because somebody stumbles across my work, and 
they all of a sudden feel permission to not be afraid of their humanity anymore, mm-hmm. which I, I think a lot of Christian art is is uh, what what it's it's trying to propagate or propagandize folks into thinking that their humanity is something that they need to be constantly trying to cure. Yes, 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 yes. And <clears throat> I mean, I, 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 I do have a deep belief that we can grow and we can mature as grace leads us, but there's a whole hell of a lot of stuff out there that we have no control over. And, and, um, and I, I'm not, I appreciate Nick Cave a whole lot because he's, he's, um, well, I, what I hear him articulating often is he's making a case against chaos. He's, he's not, he's, he's stating what the world is. Yep. yep. He's not trying to throw himself over the abyss's edge, which, which is, I think, what Christ has, is leading us to as well. It's, it's, uh, I, I feel like Jesus Christ is actually giving permission to us to look at life, face it, not lie about it. And with Easter eyes, see wonderful things and, and not to run away from, the most difficult things. And it's, it, it, it's a fascinating thing. And I don't really know, uh, understand the dynamic of who I am as a person quite yet, but I, I really, really do love dark music and I love writing darker music. I, I, I think it's, if, if I can land something that, that makes sense in the way that like a great Leonard Cohen album makes sense. I feel so proud. I feel, I feel that gratification that we, we uh, began this conversation on, but, but I'm not a person who, who consistently struggles with sadness. I'm not, that's not a critique against folks who do, but, but I actually do feel within myself, um, a gratefulness to be alive, a happiness to be alive. Although I do struggle with a fear of death constantly, it's something that I'm wrestling with my entire life. And I, I think people can hear that in, in my work. Um, but uh, I, I think I'm rambling. I, I don't know if I'm answering your question or not. I just, I do from, from cave and from, and from the new Testament when we're talking about telling the truth, we're, what we're not talking about is like starting a death metal career. That's right. Yeah, right. right? Exactly. We're not, yeah. I'm not doing that, you know? No, no, no absolutely not. And I, I think that's, there's a way in which in scripture, like depth metaphors do speak about grief. Yeah. But they don't speak only about grief. Like That's when scripture right. says deep calls out to deep, we're not talking about grief communing. Yeah. We're talking about the depth of intimacy that God's knowing of us makes possible, right? So there, there's something, grief takes you down into the depths, but there is a deeper depth. 
right? Yeah. You know, in, in the in the Chronicles of Narnia, there's that line about the deeper magic. Yeah. In Isaiah, I've, I've just been speaking about this the last few weeks. There's this passage, Isaiah 9, it comes back again a few times later mm-hmm. in Isaiah, this difference between darkness and thick darkness or darkness and deep darkness, which can be translated the shadow of death, right? So there's a there's a kind of darkness that Isaiah 9 says we walk through, but there's a deeper darkness we dwell in. And that can be heard, and I think it's designed to be heard a couple of ways. One is, if the darkness gets so dark, you can't keep walking. It, it's, wow. it forces you, it freezes you, it, it, it captures you. You go down into the depths like Jonah is swallowed up. Your, your waves have gone over my head, the psalmist says, right? And that is, I think, about grief. That is about loss. And what Cave is saying in that passage about hardening around the absence, like what, yeah. clinging to what you've lost and refusing to be opened by it. But I think another way of hearing it, and this is to your point about hope and joy, is that actually the heights of joy are deeper than the depths of grief. And the only way to get to those is yeah. to go deeper than grief, yeah. not not to skirt right. over the top of it or around Absolutely. the sides of it, but to go down all the way down into the deeps of it. And I think dwelling in the deep dark of mystery, of goodness, of beauty, of truth, of the, you know, in the to go back to your song, making love to my true companion. Yeah. Like that's dwelling in the deeper dark, the deeper magic. Yeah. That is opened up to you because of the way in which you walk through the shallower dark of grief. But if you simply refuse to face any darkness at all, right. you never get to the light, the unapproachable light that is deeper than the darkness. And I, and, and to quote Lewis too, he's got that thing where he's talking about that. Yes, the end is redemptive. The, the reconciliation, reconciliation of everything is, is our ultimate hope. But he says, but the loss is still very real. And and I think that that's what I want folks to have permission in their lives to mm-hmm. just like that. That's a great place to start accepting your life is to say the things that you've lost, that that is real. Those I mean, real losses. Yes. And there's no there's no like reward in heaven language that well, at least to me yeah, is is making that easier. Um. So I, what I, what I think that like, I'm always thinking about like the future, like what does the future look like? What, what, what does the future of the Pentecostal church look like? What is an actual Pentecostal? And, and to me, it's these very powerful people who can hold all of the deep sorrow and the deep joy and everything in between at the exact same time. They look at it all. They're not denying any of these things. Yes. And um, I mean, that's, I, I'm, I'm around, I'm around people like that occasionally. And it's, it's very, it, it, there's a strength that you can feel off folks like that. It's like, wow, there's, there's something here that I've been looking for. You know? Yeah. There's a, there's a kind of clarity. I think that comes with people who've been present to the dying, present to the suffering present to their own suffering mm-hmm. and there's a cleanness to that there's there's something icky about something happens to our souls i think when we're we're always exerting effort to avoid that 
So a, a couple of the songs I'd like to talk about, if you've got your guitar, ah, yeah. why don't you sing a little bit of Before You, God? And I want to yes. raise another theme. Yes. One of the things I love in your work in particular, but also what I think is a theme for you. Yes. Yes. Conceived in anger, born into rage, raised by wolves who fed me on the injustice of the age. My mother left me outside a stranger's door. Oh, she heard a howling wind and could not refuse it anymore. For you, God, I am opening my heart. I know you did not expect me. I'm a thief in the night. Before you, God, I will leave the 99. To find you in the darkness, I will not leave you behind. So that song also includes one of my favorite lines of yours. I still believe in miracles, God, even if you don't. Yeah. So you want, is there a story to that song or is that just, you think a, a way in which it, it also emerged from that same. Cadence? Yeah. That, that came later, that song, I wrote that song and I think 2018 uh, I, I had just read a Capen book, Robert Capen book. And he was, you know, he he's he talks to folks about, you know, left handed, the left handed power of God and yeah. find, finding the Christ figure in the parables in places that you never saw him before. So I just thought, oh, that's that's an open door. I want to go walk through that. So I started, you know, reading the Bible and and looking for Jesus in places I'd not seen him before and. You know, like, for instance, that that uh, parable, oh, the Good Samaritan, you know, I'd, I I think it, the Sunday school version I was given was Jesus was the Good Samaritan. And, you know, but when, <laughs> yeah. in fact, he's the one left for dead. And, you know, I, I read a Moltman quote one time where he said that you know, any theology that you have, unless it works in the shadow of the gates of Auschwitz, it, it can't work anywhere. Mm. And so I, that, I, that hit me hard. And so um, one thing that has kind of cemented my faith in I, I I'm I'm still unsure about this, but Nick Cave has this, he has this line in the song called Jesus Alone. Um it's from the album Skeleton Tree. Yep, yep. But there's a line that says that you get no special dispensation because you have faith. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I love Nick Cave so much is because he says things that are 
the most true, the most of the time compared to the most of the preachers that I'm listening to. Right. Right. And, and, um, what I had probably thought after that first tragedy that we experienced in 2009 was that we had filled our suffering quota yeah. with God. Yeah. And what it, there was a little bit of relief maybe. And what I found out is that I, I was not out of the woods and I'm, I'm still not out of the woods when it comes to the most random things occurring and the amount of people that I've lost to cancer is I it's, it's, it's become comical and, and holding that reality and swimming in the stream that I, I swim in, which is, man, someone's going to get sick or cancer or whatever. What do we do? We're the praying people. This is what we do. Mm -hmm. And Chris, I started calling the people in my church this. I, we're, I, I, I refer to us as the church of the people of perpetual disappointment. <laughs> because because we have the most faith we have you need, we, to, you need to found the chapel of perpetual disappointment yes and yeah. have relics there i will i will come to pray but well like like for me like john macarthur in in all of his cessationist glory he's he's got the best life because he never expects god to do anything he's <laughs> as far as he's concerned god doesn't intervene Mm -hmm. everything's already pre-wired pre-programmed and i kind of want to get on that train at some point in my life but there's some downsides to it of course and and so we're always praying for people and they're always dying <laughs> and so to your point earlier about um I, I think it was the the cave quote where you're 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 it's it's like you can you lose and you become a miser right okay. you 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 build around your loss you become uh the guy from dickens uh scrooge you become yeah, scrooge right and so that line i still believe in miracles god even when you don't that's my stake in the ground yep that i am going to be the person of perpetual disappointment um and and there are upsides to this, actually, and we've already actually talked about a few of them. But, but I feel a super a superpower growing inside of me, which is, I'm getting so acquainted with loss that my 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 losing muscles are growing stronger. My grief muscles are growing stronger. I know actually how to grieve now when I didn't used to know. And the things that we were talking about earlier, those things that we find we're finding out that nobody should know, I keep finding those things out. Yeah. And I hate to tell people this because it sounds like terrible news, but it's really gospel. It's that there are things that you can you can only find out about God when He doesn't answer your healing prayer for somebody to be healed of cancer, yeah. and. I, I yeah. know it sounds counterintuitive. I know it sounds to some folks that would be heresy, but from my experience, 
it's it's the the closest that I feel to God is when He actually seems the furthest away. Mm-hmm. Well, you have the again to quote you back to you. You find out He don't fail when He don't intervene. Yes, there's a there's a faithfulness of God that cannot be known any other way than in what is a non-intervention, right? Now, I, I think there are sound ways theologically of articulating that, but none of that really counts until you've lived it and you've That's lived right. into it and lived into it with your with your heart open and your, and your eyes open. I think Brueggemann talks a lot about different ways the Psalms teach us to relate to God. And he, he talks about there's a, there's a kind of resistance to God that you know, is rebellious, but there's a kind of acquiescence to God that's heartless and faithless. And that that is worse than rebellion, that to, to yes. go along heartlessly is demeaning yes. to you and demeaning for God. I'm, I'm often struck by at the end of Job, when Job falls on his face and says, you know, I, I repent in dust and ashes. I abhor myself and I repent in dust and ashes. I think a lot of us imagine that's what God is after, right? He's after that. And I, you know, not to pummel MacArthur, uh, but that there's a certain kind of cessationist double predestinarian theology that, that tells you God is God and you are not, you better learn to like it. Yeah. Like learn the taste of dust. Right. But what's striking to me in that story is that God does not respond to Job. He does not say, he does not tower over him and say, now you get it. Hmm. What God does is turn away from Job altogether and turn to his friends and say, and says, go to, go to Job and have him pray for you. And I, I, I mean, there are lots of ways of reading that story, obviously, but I, I think one of the things that we have to learn to be surprised by is that we have to stand up to God in a sense to discover he's already kneeling at our feet. Like he was never standing over us. He was never, a, he was never striking the posture of the the greater one, except to provoke us to our own strength. I had this dream the other night, forgive me. I, I have a good friend who um, often criticizes interviewers who talk more than their guests. So oh, he's, you're great. He's going to lash me for this <laughs> and rightly so. And I, and 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 we will turn toward toward the end here. But I had a dream a few weeks ago. I was in my parents' home, and my grandmother, who's passed away now, she was there, and she was we she kind of gathered us all around, and she was reading us the riot act. I mean, she was letting us have it, and like you know, like an old preacher, just her, you know, hellfire haranguing the congregation. And in the dream. I had the sense of this isn't her. Why is she doing this? Like this, this isn't right. This is not who I know her to be. It wasn't exactly mean, but there was an edge to it. And it it was out of character for her. Mm -hmm. And I felt myself getting more and more upset, more and more disoriented by what she was doing. Anyway, at some point I stand up and I say, Nan, stop. You, You can't do this. This is not you. And when I did that, she started taking steps back. And I am walking toward her, right? And she's backing away. She backs all the way outside, out the door. And outside, there's this kind of light. And of course, this is a dream. This can happen in a dream. A light falls on her. And I see her face really clearly for the first time. And I, as soon as I see her face clearly, I realize she's done this to provoke me. I see the laughter in her eyes. 
And I, and I start laughing and we rush and embrace. And when we embrace, I feel in the dream, I feel and hear my back snap into place, right? Every vertebra in my back kind of snap into place one at a time from my waist to my neck and brought me into alignment, right? And stood me up. And I realized, I mean, there's a lot happening there, but I think God does do that, that there are times in which God confronts us with force, but it's so we stand up, right? Not because God is trying to, to dominate us, right? And I think part of what I love about your music, and I think it's true to the best of our tradition and true to the best in scripture and the scriptural tradition, is that God invites that kind of protest, invites that kind of lamentation, invites that kind of argument, right? Abraham, don't just accept that I'm going to destroy Sodom and start over. Or Moses, don't accept that I'm going to destroy Israel and start over. I need you to stand up, not because I actually intend harm, but because you've got to become the kind of person who has those muscles you were describing a moment ago, that alignment that happened to me in my back straightening, right? That that has to happen in the grappling with God. And if we don't do that in our praying, in our singing, in our poetry, in our sermons, then we won't ever develop that strength. So Yeah, and I and I think that that I I feel if I had any type of vocational call on me, I I do want to provoke people to that place that you've just described because I I I feel saddened by the um well our 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 reformed brethren and I I don't feel saddened by them I feel I feel saddened by a world where miracles are not possible mm-hmm. so so that's kind of where like I I I I push back and critique my Pentecostal tribe all the time, but but the alternative for me cannot be we live in a unmysterious world where God is control in control of all the minutia of every part of our lives all of the time. Mm-hmm. And uh I feel an invitation by by God or the Spirit or however you want to describe it into like i i just keep going back to that line that you were talking about believe in miracles even when it appears that god does not yes that that to me is the most spirit-filled life that you could choose for yourself absolutely and i think what what keeps that grounded for you is being present to your pain and the pain of others it's one thing to say that line you know we talked about Singing I'll Fly Away when we've got life held at arm's length is one thing. Singing it at the bedside of the dying is another. Yes. Singing that line, I believe in miracles, when your heart is open to the brokenness of the world, the sorrow of your neighbor. You know, I, I, I sometimes make the distinction between suffering and sorrow and say that God does not want us to suffer, but he does want us to be with the suffering and yes. to take our suffering to heart. Mm. And that's what I mean by sorrowing. To sorrow is to take suffering to heart because there we're down into that deep darkness where something else can happen, right? And I think that fighting back against what we imagine to be God often is how we discover, okay, that was never God in the first place. That was a projection of my ego or that's just the way the world works. I think for a lot of us, what we're calling God is just the face of the way the world works, 
Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> once we have to recognize God is not the world's process, right? The world is gone wrong. And it's hap- that gone wrongness is happening within the sovereignty of God. Yeah. But what I'm experiencing is not the face of God. I'm experiencing the brokenness of the world. And if I call that God, yeah. then I'm talking about an idol or I'm thinking of the projection of my own ego. Right. So I think this is in some ways about purification. Right. Yes. And it comes yes. in prayer, in art, yes. in song, in, in the, what we called earlier expression and demonstrativeness like that. Sometimes my body in dance yeah. it screams or in prostration, whatever it happens to be, I have to let my body do the work for me. And that's, that's our tradition at its best. It's, it's trusting the body. You know, I, I, you know, that famous book, the body keeps the score. I remember the first time I, I heard about the book and read some of it thinking, okay, this is the genius of the black spirituality, yeah. the slave spirituality yes. that gave rise to my tradition. Yes. It's that sometimes the body has to settle the score, not just keep the score, settle the score. Yeah. And it can do that by, by dancing or by weeping or by yeah. kneeling. And I think your art works in, in that place. So one more comment on that and then we'll shift toward a final. Yeah. Oh, well, I, I was, I was going to say, Chris, one thing that I've learned from you over the years is, uh, I mean, and this was very helpful for me in understanding my life's my life and my life work is that you talk about, um, God being faithful Faithful, yes, but but God is also unpredictable. Yeah. I mean, that articulation was such a balm to my soul. Uh, it it it. I I think I think what it did was it allowed me to feel gracious towards God. <laughs> oh man, yes. You know, if 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 uh, I I mean I know this will sound sacrilegious to some folks, but like uh, sowing a little mercy in the direction of our heavenly father, like, you know, I mean, God, I'm in a tough spot. I don't understand my life and I don't understand who the hell you are either. But, um, but this guy over here says that you're, you're apparently faithful and yet unpredictable. Okay. That, that gives me like a, that gives me a much wider field to discover you in. And I think that's what great poetry does. I think that's what great songwriting does. I think that, um, you know, uh, language is so important. Uh, it, and I'll, I'll say this, when, when, uh, when language usage constricts our understandings of God constrict or, or grow smaller, right? Yes, and, and so it's why we need to let the poets back into the church because we need an expanded vernacular and expanded vocabulary uh, so that we can fully or, or, or enjoy God in a more fuller way, understand God in a more fuller way. Couldn't agree more. And I think that's the, there's a, there's a tight relationship between moralism and the restriction of poetry, right? That a lot of our churches at some point, they claim to be holiness churches, but they became moralistic churches. Yes. And that matched, I think, the loss of our artfulness. We started to fabricate from formulas rather than to to yeah. sing and dance and pray 
and preach from a broken open heart i don't i don't i think those two things are related and part of what we're called back to is the kind of holiness that shatters moralism the kind of holiness that leaves room for there's nothing that humans can experience that's not a fitting that cannot be fittingly expressed in prayer and in song nothing that humans experience and there's there's no part you know anything we're afraid to put into our art is something we're we're also afraid to put into our prayers mm-hmm. right if we're afraid to show it in a movie or watch it in a movie then we're afraid to own it in the prayer closet we are there's just no way if you're a, if you're ashamed of those things artfully yeah that you aren't ashamed of them heartfully you know yeah and that that kills us i mean that dehumanizes us in ways that it's it's almost impossible to recover from and as we've said many times in this conversation that has to be broken open That's and whether right. it's grief or wonder or just simply the the strange something has to get you outside of that that box all right let's let's i mean there's so many things i plan to talk to you about that we didn't get to but that's as it should be let's do a final song do you yeah. do you want to do the one that we worked on and if so why don't yes. you talk a little bit about that yeah yeah well uh i'll say this i don't do a lot of co-writing i because i mean that's i mean songwriting is a per, pretty personal thing um and and i my mind thinks a certain way and um i'm i'm not against co-writing but it has to it has to be right um and so when i do co-writing a lot of what i do is more like editing helping other writers get to where they want to go yeah but and you this- do for those who don't know and who are listening here, you do a lot of that. You you help younger writers and I mean not just yeah. younger writers. Other yeah, yeah, writers yeah. Yes. yeah. That's right. Yeah. I I I've got a lot of folks knocking on my door for that side of thing. And and I love it. I I really enjoy because really what I do is I have the conversation that you and I have just had with 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 people that are interested in art, you know. So um but uh Dr. Green approached me with some lyrics the other day and I, I and I read these and I I have to say I was I was stunned because uh because the level of genius on these I I'm I'm setting people up to be disappointed because probably <laughs> <laughs> that's all I ever do. So you're you're in good company. Well well, I, I I just have to say, I have to tell on myself, I've been singing this song. I, I've been walking around the house singing this song because I've just, it's, it's like an Andy Squire song. It's one that's right in the intersection of, of the things that I'm trying to do and trying to say and, and the way that I'm trying to say things. And so, um, so this is this is a, a Green Squires collaboration, first of hopefully many, and uh, we're this, this is the first place this has been heard live. So, nice. uh, without further ado, we'll we'll uh, we'll let this be the last word. So send everybody out with this. All right, Andy. All right, here we go. So one, two, three, four, five, six. The kids my questions ask 
the skies, the clouds don't rain. The blue I wear at home, the black I wear in pain. The glass holds all the light, sowing shadows everywhere. The flowers in their pots, the flowers in your head. Though this is all, all falling apart, but that's perfectly all right. It's just the breaking of a heart, the gathering of life. Sparrows fold up in the dark Crows harvesting their seed From the furrow of your brow And the bending of your knee The water's on the flame The flame is in my hand My hand is in this song This song is in your name And oh, this is all All falling apart But that's perfectly alright It's just the breaking of a heart the gathering of light and oh this is all maddening as it seems but it's more more than enough the glory gathers at the seams all waiting to be loved This is all, all falling apart, but that's perfectly alright. It's just the breaking of my heart, the gathering of life. Oh, friend, thank you for that. <laughs> I love it, Chris. I love it. <laughs> Let's do this again, all right? Uh, I hope so. I, and hopefully I'll be more articulate next time. <laughs> oh, that's the last thing we need. <laughs> Until then, brother. Ooh.